Section 2 of The Matador of the Five Towns and Other Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Andy Minter. The Matador of the Five Towns and Other Stories by Arnold Bennett. Section 2 The Matador of the Five Towns. Part 2. 4. We were swept from the football ground on a furious flood of humanity, carried forth and flung down a slope into a large waste space that separated the ground from the nearest streets of little reddish houses. At the bottom of the slope, on my suggestion, we halted for a few moments aside, while the current rushed forward and, spreading out, inundated the whole space in one marvellous minute. The impression of the multitude streaming from that gap in the wooden wall was like nothing more than the impression of a burst main which only the emptying of the reservoir will assuage. Anybody who wanted to commit suicide might have stood in front of that gap and had his wish. He would not have been noticed. The interminable and implacable infantry charge would have passed unheedingly over him. A silent, preoccupied host, bent on something else now, and perhaps teased by the inconvenient thought that, after all, a draw is not as good as a win. It hurried blindly, instinctively outwards, knees and chins protruding, hands deep in pockets, chilled feet stamping. Occasionally someone stopped or slackened to light a pipe, and on being curtly bunted onward by a blind force from behind, accepted the hint as an atom accepts the law of gravity. The fever and ecstasy were over. What fascinated the Southern in me was the grim taciturnity, the steady stare, vacant or dreaming, and the heavy, muffled, multitudinous tramp shaking the cindery earth. The flood continued to rage through the gap. Our automobile had been left at the Haycock Hotel. We went to get it, braving the inundation. Nearly opposite the stable-yard, the electric trams started for Hanbridge, Bursley and Turnhill, and for Longshore. Here the crowd was less dangerous, but still very formidable, to my eyes. Each tram, as it came up, was savagely assaulted, seized, crammed, and possessed, with astounding rapidity. Its steps were the western bank of a Beresina. At a given moment, the inured conductor, brandishing his leather-shielded arm with a pitiless gesture, thrust aspirants down into the mud, and the tram rolled powerfully away. All this in silence. After a few minutes, a bicyclist swished along through the mud, taking the far side of the road, which was comparatively free. He wore grey trousers, heavy boots, and a dark cutaway coat, up the back of which a line of caked mud had deposited itself. On his head was a bowler hat. "'How do, Joss?' cried a couple of boys cheekily, and then there were a few adult greetings of respect. It was the hero, in haste. "'Out of it there!' he warned impeders between his teeth, and plugged on with bent head. "'He keeps the foaming quart up at Toft End,' said the doctor. "'It's the highest pub in the five towns. He used to be what they call a pot-hunter, a racing bicyclist, you know. But he's got past that, and he'll soon be past football. He's thirty-four if he's a day. That's one reason why he's so independent. That, and because he's almost the only genuine native in the team.' "'Why?' I asked. "'Where do they come from, then?' "'Oh,' said Stirling, as he gently started the car, "'the club buys them up and down the country. Four of them are Scots. 
A few years ago an Oldham club offered Knight five hundred pounds for Myatt, big price, more than he's worth now. But he wouldn't go, though they guaranteed to put him into a first-class pub, a free house. He's never cost Knight anything except his wages and the goodwill of the foaming court. What are his wages? Oh, I don't know exactly. Not much. The Football Association fix a maximum. I dare say about four pounds a week. Hi there, are ye deaf? Now mind what thou'rt about, responded a stout loiterer in our path, or I'll take the years home for my tea, mister. Stirling laughed. In a few minutes we had arrived at Hanbridge, splashing all the way between two processions that crowded either footpath, and in the middle of the road was a third procession of trams, tram following tram, each gorged with passengers, frothing at the step with passengers, not the lackadaisical trams that I had seen earlier in the afternoon in Crown Square, a different race of trams, eager and impetuous velocities. We reached the signal offices. No crowd of urchins to salute us this time. Under the earth was the machine-room of the signal. It reminded me of the bowels of a ship, so full was it of machinery. One huge machine clattered slowly, and a folded green thing dropped strangely onto a little iron table in front of us. Buchanan opened it, and I saw that the broken leg was in it at length, together with a statement that, in the signal's opinion, the sympathy of every true sportsman would be with the disabled player. I began to say something to Buchanan, when suddenly I could not hear my own voice. The great machine, with another behind us, was working at a fabulous speed and with a fabulous clatter. All that my startled senses could clearly disentangle was that the blue arc-lights above us blinked occasionally, and that folded green papers were snowing down upon the iron table far faster than the eye could follow them. Tall lads in aprons elbowed me away, and carried off the green papers in bundles, but not more quickly than the machine shed them. Buchanan put his lips to my ear, but I could hear nothing. I shook my head. He smiled and led us out from the tumult. "'Come and see the boys taken,' he said at the foot of the stairs. In a sort of hall on the ground floor was a long counter, and beyond the counter a system of steel railings in parallel lines, so arranged that a person entering at the public door could only reach the counter by passing up or down each alley in succession. These steel lanes, which absolutely ensured the triumph of right over might, were packed with boys, the ragged urchins whom we had seen playing in the street, but not urchins now, rather young tigers. Perhaps half a dozen had reached the counter, the rest were massed behind, shouting and quarrelling. Through a hole in the wall at the level of the counter, bundles of papers shot continuously, and were snatched up by servers who distributed them in smaller bundles to the hungry boys who flung down metal discs in exchange, and fled, fled madly as though fiends were after them through a third door, out of the pandemonium into the darkling street. And unceasingly the green papers appeared at the hole in the wall, and unceasingly they were plucked away and borne off by those maddened children, whose destination was apparently Aix or Ghent, and whose wings were their tatters. "'What are those?' I inquired. "'And the lads have to come and buy them earlier in the day,' said Buchanan. "'We haven't time to sell this edition for cash, you see.' "'Well,' I said as we left, "'I'm very much obliged.' "'What on earth for?' Buchanan asked. 
"'Everything,' I said. We returned through the squares of Hanbridge and by Trafalgar Road to Stirling's house at Bleakridge, and everywhere in the deepening twilight I could see the urchins, often hatless and sometimes scarcely shod, scudding over the lamp-reflecting mire with sheets of wavy green, and above the noises of traffic I could hear the shrill outcry, "'Signal! Football edition! Football edition! Signal!' The world was being informed of the might of Jos Myatt, and of the averting of disaster from Nipe, and of the result of over a hundred other matches, not counting rugby. 5. During the course of the evening, when Stirling had thoroughly accustomed himself to the state of being in sole charge of an expert from the British Museum London, and the high walls round his more private soul had yielded to my timid but constant attacks, we grew fairly intimate and in particular the doctor proved to me that his reputation for persuasive raciness with patients was well founded yet up to the time of dessert i might have been justified in supposing that that much-praised manner in a sick-room was nothing but a provincial legend such may be the influence of a quite inoffensive and shy londoner in the country at half-past ten, Titus being already asleep for the night in an armchair, we sat at ease over the fire in the study, telling each other stories. We had dealt with the arts and with medicine. Now we were dealing with life, in those aspects of it which cause men to laugh and women uneasily to wonder. Once or twice we had mentioned the Brindleys. The hour for their arrival was come. But being deeply comfortable and content where I was, I felt no impatience. Then there was a tap at the window. "'Ah, that's Bobby,' said Stirling, rising slowly from his chair. "'He won't refuse whisky, even if you do. I'd better get another bottle.' The tap was repeated peevishly. "'I'm coming, laddie,' Stirling protested. He slippered out through the hall and through the surgery to the side door, I following, and Titus sneezing and snuffling in the rear. "'I say, mester,' said a heavy voice as the doctor opened the door. It was not Brindley, but Jos Myatt. Unable to locate the bell-push in the dark, he had characteristically attacked the sole illuminated window. He demanded, or he commanded very curtly, that the doctor should go up instantly to the foaming quart at Toft End. Stirling hesitated a moment. "'All right, my man,' said he calmly. "'Now?' The heavy, suspicious voice on the doorstep insisted. "'I'll be there before ye, if ye don't sprint, man. I'll run up in the car.' Stirling shut the door. I heard footsteps on the gravel path outside. "'You heard,' said he to me. "'And what am I to do with ye?' "'I'll go with you, of course,' I answered. "'I may be kept up there a while.' "'I don't care,' I said roisterously. "'It's a pub, and I'm a traveller. Stirling's household was in bed, and his assistant gone home. While he and Titus got out the car, I wrote a line for the Brindleys. Gone with the doctor to see patient at Toft End. Don't wake up. A.L. This we pushed under Brindley's front door on our way forth. Very soon we were vibrating up a steep street on the first speed of the car, and the yellow reflections of distant furnaces began to shine over house-roofs below us. It was exhilaratingly cold, a clear and frosty night, tonic, bracing after the enclosed warmth of the study. I was joyous, but silently, 
we had quitted the kingdom of the god Pan. We were in Lucina's realm, its consequence, where there is no laughter. We were on a mission. "'I didn't expect this,' said Stirling. "'No,' I said, "'but seeing that he fetched you this morning.' "'Oh, that was only an order, to be sure, for himself. "'His sister was there in charge. "'Seemed very capable. "'Knew all about everything. "'Until you get to the high social status of a clerk or draper's assistant, "'people seem to manage to have their children without professional assistance.' "'Then do you think there's anything wrong?' I asked. "'I'd not be surprised.' "'He changed to the second speed as the car topped the first bluff. "'We said no more.' The night and the mission solemnized us, and gradually, as we rose towards the purple skies, the five towns wrote themselves out in fire on the irregular plain below. "'There's Hanbridge Town Hall,' said Stirling, pointing to the right. "'And that's Bursley Town Hall,' he said, pointing to the left. And there were many other beacons dominating the jewelled street-lines that faded on the horizon into golden-tinted smoke." The road was never quite free of houses. After occurring, but sparsely for half a mile, they thickened into a village, the suburb of Bursley called Toft End. I saw a moving red light in front of us. It was the reverse of Hyatt's bicycle lantern. The car stopped near the dark façade of the inn, of which two yellow windows gleamed. Stirling, under Myatt's shouted guidance, backed into an obscure yard under cover. The engine ceased to throb. "'Friend of mine,' he introduced me to Myatt. "'By the way, Loring, pass me my bag, will you? Mustn't forget that.' Then he extinguished the acetylene lamps, and there was no light in the yard except the ray of the bicycle lantern which Myatt held in his hand. We groped towards the house. Strange, every step that I take in the five towns seemed to have the genuine quality of an adventure.' Six. In five minutes I was of no account in the scheme of things at Toft End, and I began to wonder why I had come. Stirling, my sole protector, had vanished up the dark stairs of the house, following a stout, youngish woman in a white apron, who bore a candle. Jos Myatt, behind, said to me, "'Appen you'd better go in there, Mester,' pointing to a half-open door at the foot of the stairs." I went into a little room at the rear of the bar-parlour. A good fire burned in a small old-fashioned grate, but there was no other light. The inn was closed to customers, it being past eleven o'clock. On a bare table I perceived a candle, and ventured to put a match to it. Then I saw almost exactly such a room as one would expect to find at the rear of the bar-parlour of an inn on the outskirts of an industrial town. It appeared to serve the double purpose of a living-room and of a retreat for favoured customers. The table was evidently one at which men drank. On the shelf was a row of bottles, more or less empty, bearing names famous in newspaper advertisements and in the House of Lords. The dozen chairs suggested an acute bodily discomfort such as would only be tolerated by a sitter all of whose sensory faculties were centred on his palate. On a broken chair in the corner was an insecure pile of books. A smaller table was covered with a chequered cloth on which were a few plates. Along one wall, under the window, ran a pitch-pine sofa, upholstered with a stuff slightly dissimilar from that on the table. The mattress of the sofa was uneven, and its surface wrinkled. 
and old newspapers and pieces of brown paper had been stowed away between it and the framework. The chief article of furniture was an effective walnut bookcase, the glass doors of which were curtained with red cloth. The window, wider than it was high, was also curtained with red cloth. The walls, papered in a saffron tint, bore framed advertisements and a few photographs of self-conscious persons. The ceiling was as obscure as heaven, the floor tiled, with a list rug in front of the steel fender. I put my overcoat on the sofa, picked up the candle, and glanced at the books in the corner. Lavater's indestructible work, a paper-covered Whittaker, the licensed Vittler's Almanac, Johnny Ludlow, the illustrated catalogue of the exhibition of 1856, Cruden's Concordance, and the seven or eight volumes of Knight's Penny Encyclopedia. While I was poring on these titles, I heard movements overhead. Previously there had been no sound whatever, and with guilty haste I restored the candle to the table and placed myself negligently in front of the fire. "'Now, don't let me see you up here any more till I fetch you,' said a woman's distant voice, not crossly, but firmly, and then crossly, "'Be off with you now!' Reluctant boots on the stairs. Jos Myatt entered to me. He did not speak at first, nor did I. He avoided my glance. He was still wearing the cutaway coat with the line of mud up the back. I took out my watch, not for the sake of information, but from mere nervousness, and the sight of the watch reminded me that it would be prudent to wind it up. "'Better not forget that,' I said, winding it. "'Aye,' said he, gloomily. "'It's a tip.' And he wound up his watch, a large, thick, golden one. This watch-winding established a basis of intercourse between us. "'Now I hope everything's going on all right,' I murmured. "'What do you say?' he asked. "'I say, I hope everything's going on all right,' I repeated louder, and jerked my head in the direction of the stairs, to indicate the place from which he had come. "'Oh!' he exclaimed, as if surprised. "'Now what'll you have, mister?' he stood, waiting. "'It's my call to-night.' I explained to him that I never took alcohol. It was not quite true, but it was as true as most general propositions are. "'Neither me,' he said shortly, after a pause. "'You're a teetotaler, too?' I showed a little involuntary astonishment. He put forward his chin. "'What do you think?' he said, confidentially and scornfully. It was precisely as if he had said, "'Do you think anybody but a born ass would not be a teetotaler in my position?' I sat down on a chair. "'Take the squab, mister,' he said, pointing to the sofa. I took it. He picked up the candle, then dropped it, and lighted a lamp which was on the mantelpiece between his vases of blue glass. His movements were very slow, hesitating and clumsy. Blowing out the candle, which smoked for a long time, he went with the lamp to the bookcase. As the key of the bookcase was in his right pocket and the lamp in his right hand, he had to change the lamp cautiously from hand to hand. When he opened the cupboard I saw a rich gleam of silver from every shelf of it except the lowest, and I could distinguish the forms of ceremonial cups with pedestals and immense handles. "'I suppose these are your pots,' I said. "'Aye.' He displayed to me the fruits of his manifold victories. 
I could see him straining along endless cinder-paths and high-roads under hot suns, his great knees going up and down like treadles amid the plaudits and howls of vast populations. And all that now remained of that glory was these debased and vicious shapes, magnificently useless, grossly ugly, with their inscriptions lost in a mess of flourishes. "'Aye,' he said again, when I had fingered the last of them, "'A very fine show indeed,' I said, resuming the sofa. He took a penny-bottle of ink and a pen out of the bookcase, and also, from the lowest shelf, a bag of money and a long, narrow account-book. Then he sat down at the table and commenced accountancy. It was clear that he regarded his task as formidable and complex. To see him reckoning the coins, manipulating the pen, splashing the ink, scratching the page— to hear him whispering consecutive numbers aloud, and muttering mysterious anathemas against the untamable naughtiness of figures. All this was painful, and with the painfulness of a simple exercise rendered difficult by ineptitude and incompetence. I wanted to jump up and cry to him, "'Get out of the way, man, and let me do it for you. I can do it while you're wiping hairs from your pen on your sleeve.' I was sorry for him, because he was ridiculous." and even more grotesque than ridiculous. I felt quite acutely that it was a shame that he should not be for ever the central figure of a field of mud, kicking a ball into long and grandiose parabolas higher than gasometers, or breaking an occasional leg surrounded by the violent affection of hearts whose melting point was the exclamation, "'Good old Joss!' I felt that if he must repose, his existence ought to have been so contrived that he could repose in impassive and senseless dignity, like a mountain watching the flight of time. The conception of him tracing symbols in a ledger, counting shillings and sixpences, descending to arithmetic, and suffering those humiliations which are the invariable preliminaries to legitimate fatherhood, were shocking to a nice taste for harmonious fitness." What? This precious and terrific organism, this slave with a speciality, whom distant towns had once been anxious to buy at the prodigious figure of five hundred pounds, obliged to sit in a mean chamber and wait silently while the woman of his choice encountered the supreme peril? And he would soon be past football. He was thirty-four if a day. It was the verge of senility. He was no longer worth five hundred pounds— Perhaps even now this jointed merchandise was only worth two hundred pounds. And they, the shadowy directors, who could not kick a ball fifty feet, and who would probably turn sick if they broke a leg, they paid him four pounds a week for being the hero of a quarter of a million of people. He was the chief magnet to draw fifteen thousand sixpences and shillings of a Saturday afternoon into a company's cash-box, and here he sat, splitting his head over fewer sixpences and shillings than would fill a half-pint pot. Joss, you ought in justice to have been José, with a thin red necktie down your breast, instead of a line of mud up your back, and embroidered breeches on those miraculous legs, and an income of a quarter of a million pesetas, and the languishing acquiescence of innumerable mantillas. Every moment you were getting older and stiffer, Every moment was bringing nearer the moment when young men would reply curtly to their doddering elders, "'Joss Myatt? Who was he?' 
the putting away of the ledger, the ink, the pen, and the money, was as exasperating as the taking out had been. Then Jos, always too large for the room, crossed the tiled floor and mended the fire. A poker was more suited to his capacity than a pen. He glanced about him, uncertain and anxious, and then crept to the door near the foot of the stairs and listened. There was no sound, and that was curious. The woman who was bringing into the world the hero's child made no cry that reached us below. Once or twice I had heard muffled movements, not quite overhead, somewhere above, but naught else. The doctor and Jos's sister seemed to have retired into a sinister and dangerous mystery. I could not dispel from my mind pictures of what they were watching and what they were doing, the vast, cruel, fumbling clumsiness of nature, her lack of majesty in crises that ought to be majestic. Her incurable indignity disgusted me, arounded my disdain. I wanted, as a philosopher of all the cultures, to feel that the present was indeed a majestic crisis, to be so esteemed by a superior man. I could not. Though the crisis possibly intimidated me somewhat, yet on behalf of Jos Myatt I was ashamed of it. This may be reprehensible, but it is true. He sat down by the fire and looked at the fire. I could not attempt to carry on a conversation with him, and to avoid the necessity for any talk at all, I extended myself on the sofa and averted my face, wondering once again why I had accompanied the doctor to Toft End. The doctor was now in another and inaccessible world. I dozed, and from my doze I was roused by Jos Myatt going to the door on the stairs. "'Jos,' said a voice, "'it's a girl.' Then a silence. I admit there was a flutter in my heart. Another soul, another formed and unchangeable temperament tumbled into the world. Whence? Whither? As for the quality of majesty, yes, if silver trumpets had announced the advent instead of a stout aproned woman, the moment could not have been more majestic in its sadness. I say sadness, which is the inevitable and sole effect of these eternal and banal questions. Whence? Whither? "'Is her bad?' Jos whispered. "'It's pretty bad,' said the voice, but cheerily. "'Bring me up another scuttle of coal.' When he returned to the parlour, after being again dismissed, I said to him, "'Well, I congratulate you.' "'I thank you,' he said, and sat down. Presently I could hear him muttering to himself mildly, "'Hell! Hell! Hell!' I thought, "'Sterling will not be very long now, and we can depart home.' I looked at my watch. It was a quarter to two, but Sterling did not appear, nor was there any message from him or sign. I had to submit myself to the predicament. As a faint chilliness from the window affected my back, I drew my overcoat up to my shoulders as a counterpane. Through a gap between the red curtains of the window I could see a star blazing. It passed behind the curtain with disconcerting rapidity. The universe was swinging and whirling as usual. 7. Sounds of knocking disturbed me. In the few seconds that elapsed before I could realise just where I was and why I was there, the summoning knocks were repeated. The early sun was shining through the red blind. I sat up and straightened my hair. 
involuntarily composing my attitude so that nobody who might enter the room should imagine that I had been other than patiently wide awake all night. The second door of the parlour, that leading to the bar-room of the foaming court, was open, and I could see the bar itself with shelves rising behind it and the upright handles of a beer-engine at one end. Someone whom I could not see was evidently unbolting and unlocking the principal entrance to the inn. Then I heard the scraping of a creaky portal on the floor. "'Well, Joss, lad?' It was the voice of the little man, Charlie, who had spoken with Myatt on the football field. "'Come in quick, Charlie. It's cold,' said the voice of Joss Myatt, gloomily. "'Aye, cold it is, lad. It's above three mile that I've walked, and thou knows it, Joss. Give us a quart and a gin.' The door grated again, and a bolt was drawn. The two men passed together behind the bar, and so within my vision. Charlie had a grey muffler round his neck. His hands were far in his pockets, and seemed to be at strain, as though trying to prevent his upper and his lower garments from plying apart. Jos Myatt was extremely dishevelled. In the little man's demeanour towards the big one, there was now none of the self-conscious pride in the mere fact of acquaintance that I had noticed on the field. Clearly the two were intimate friends, perhaps relatives. While Joss was dispensing the gin, Charlie said, in a low tone, "'Well, what luck, Joss?' This was the first reference by either of them to the crisis. Joss deliberately finished pouring out the gin, and then he said, "'There's two on em, Charlie.' Two on em? What means the lad?' "'I mean, it's twins.' Charlie and I were equally startled. "'Thou never says,' he murmured, incredulous. "'Aye, one of both sorts,' says Joss. "'Thou never says,' Charlie repeated, holding his glass of gin steady in his hand. "'One come at summat after one o'clock, and t'other between five and six. I had to fetch old woman early to help. <laughs> it were more than handful for Susanna and the doctor.' "'Astonishing that I could have slept through these events.' "'How is her?' asked Charlie, quietly, as if it were casually. I think this appearance of casualness was caused by the stoic suppression of the symptoms of anxiety. "'As yeah, bad,' said Joss, briefly. Yeah, "'I'm nice surprised,' said Charlie, and he lifted his glass. "'Well, here's luck.' He sipped the gin, savouring it on his tongue like a connoisseur, and gradually making up his mind about its quality. Then he took another sip. "'I seen her.' "'I seed her for a minute, but our Susanna wouldn't have let me stop at room. I was raving like.' "'Missus?' "'Aye.' "'And the babbies? I seen them?' "'Aye, but I can make nout out on them. Mrs. Eardley says as has never seen no finer. Doctor gone? Oh, that he hasn't. He's been up there all the blessed night in his shirt sleeves. I'll give him a stiff glass of whisky at five o'clock, and that's all he's had. Charlie finished his gin. The pair stood silent. Well, said Charlie, striking his leg. Swelt me, Bob. Fair beats me. Twins. Who'd have thought it? Just lad. "'They must be thankful as it isn't the triplets. <laughs> "'Never did I think, as I was footing it up here this morning, "'as it was twins I was coming to. "'Hast thou got that half-quid in thy pocket?' 
"'What half quid?' said Charlie defensively. "'Now then, chuck us it over,' said Jos, suddenly harsh and overbearing. "'I laid thee half a quid as it would be a wench,' said Charlie doggedly. "'That a liar, Charlie,' said Jos. "'Thou laid half a quid it wasn't a boy.' "'Nay, nay,' Charlie shook his head. "'And a boy it is,' Jos persisted. "'It being a lad and a wench,' said Charlie, with judicial air, "'and me having laid as it had be a wench, I wins.' In his accents and his gestures I could discern the mean soul, who on principle never paid until he was absolutely forced to pay. I could see also that Jos Myatt knew his man.' "'Thou lads me as it wasn't a lad,' Jos almost shouted. "'And a lad it is, I tell thee.' "'And the wench,' said Charlie, then shook his head. The wrangle proceeded monotonously, each party repeating over and over again the phrases of his own argument. I was very glad that Jos did not know me to be a witness of the making of the bet, otherwise I should assuredly have been summoned to give judgment.' "'Let's call it off, then,' Charlie suggested at length. "'That'll settle it. And it being twins—' "'Nay, thou old devil, I'll non call it off. Thou owes me half a quid, and I'll have it out of thee.' "'Look here,' Charlie said, more softly. "'I'll tell thee what'll settle it. Which on em come first, the lad or the wench?' "'Dwench come first. Jos Wyatt admitted with resentful reluctance— dully aware that defeat was waiting him. "'Well, then, the wench is the eldest child, that's law, that is. And what was us betting about, Jos, lad? Us was betting about thy eldest and no other. I'll admit as I laid it wasn't a lad, as thou sayest. And it wasn't a lad. First come his eldest, and us was betting about the eldest.' Charlie stared at the father in triumph. Jos Myatt pushed roughly past him in the narrow space behind the bar, and came into the parlour. Nodding to me curtly, he unlocked the bookcase, and took two crown pieces from a leathern purse which lay next to the bag. Then he returned to the bar and banged the coins on the counter with fury. "'Take thy brass!' he shouted angrily. "'Take thy brass! But thou'rt a damn shark, Charlie, and if anybody would give me a plugger backer for doing it, I'd bash thy face in!' The other sniggered contentedly as he picked up his money. "'A bet's a bet,' said Charlie. He was clearly accustomed to an occasional violence of demeanour from Jos Myatt, and felt no fear. But he was wrong in feeling no fear. He had not allowed, in his estimate of the situation, for the exasperated condition of Jos Myatt's nerves under the unique experiences of the night— Jos's face twisted into a hundred wrinkles, and his hand seized Charlie by the arm, whose hand held the coins. "'Drop em!' he cried loudly, repenting his naive honesty. "'Drop em, or I'll—' The stout woman, her apron all soiled, now came swiftly and scarce heard into the parlour, and stood at the door, leaning to the barroom. "'What's up, Susanna?' Jos demanded in a new voice. "'Well, may you ask what's up?' said the woman, shouting and brangling there, you sots. "'What's up?' Jos demanded again, loosing Charlie's arm. "'Has gone,' the woman feebly whimpered. "'Like that?' with a vague movement of the hand indicating suddenness. 
Then she burst into wild sobs, and rushed madly back when she had come, and the sound of her sobs diminished as she ascended the stairs, and expired altogether in the distant shutting of a door. The men looked at each other. Charlie restored the crown pieces to the counter and pushed them towards Jos. "'Here,' he murmured faintly. Jos flung them savagely to the ground. Another pause followed. "'As God's my witness!' he exclaimed solemnly, his voice saturated with feeling. "'As God's my witness!' he repeated. "'I'll ne'er touch a football again!' Little Charlie gazed up at him sadly, plaintively, for what seemed a long while. "'It's good-bye to the first league, then, for Nipe,' he tragically muttered at length. 8. Dr. Stirling drove the car very slowly back to Bursley. We glided gently down into the populous valleys. All the stunted trees were coated with rime, which made the sharpest contrast with their black branches and the black mud under us. The high chimneys sent forth their black smoke calmly and tirelessly into the fresh blue sky. Sunday had descended on the vast landscape like a physical influence. We saw a snake of children winding out of a dark brown Sunday school into a dark brown chapel and up from the valleys came all the bells of all the temples of all the different gods of the five towns, chiming, clanging, ringing, each insisting that it alone invited to the altar of the one god. And priests and acolytes of the various cults hurried occasionally along, in silk hats and bright neckties and smooth coats with folded handkerchiefs sticking out of the pockets, busy, happy, and self-important, the convinced heralds of eternal salvation— no doubt nor hesitation as to any fundamental truth had ever entered into their minds. We passed through a long straight street of new red houses with blue slate roofs, all gated and gardened. Here and there a girl with her hair in pins and a rough brown apron over a gaudy frock was stoning a front step, and halfway down the street a man in a scarlet jersey, supported by two women in blue bonnets, was beating a drum and crying aloud, "'My friends, you may die to-night. Where, I ask you, where?' But he had no friends. Not even a boy heeded him. The drum continued to bang in our rear. I enjoyed all this. All this seemed to me to be fine, and to throw off the true, fine, romantic savour of life. I would have altered nothing in it. Mean, harsh, ugly, squalid, crude, barbaric— Yes, but what an intoxicating sense in it of the organised vitality of a vast community, unconscious of itself. I would have altered nothing, even in the events of the night. I thought of the rooms at the top of the staircase of the foaming quart, mysterious rooms which I had not seen and never should see, recondite rooms from which a soul had slipped away, and into which two had come, scenes of anguish and of frustrated effort, historical room, surely, and yet not a house in the hundreds of houses past which we slid, but possessed rooms ennobled and made august by happenings exactly as impressive in their tremendous inexplicableness. The natural humanity of Jos Myatt and Charlie, their fashion of comporting themselves in a sudden stress, pleased me. How else should they have behaved? 
I could understand Charlie's prophetic dirge over the ruin of the Knight Football Club. It was not that he did not feel the tragedy in the house. He had felt it, and because he had felt it, he had uttered at random, foolishly, the first clear thought that ran into his head. Stirling was quiet. He appeared to be absorbed in steering, and looked straight in front, yawning now and again. He was much more fatigued than I was. Indeed, I slept pretty well. He said, as we swerved into Trafalgar Road and overtook the aristocracy on its way to chapel and church, "'Well, you let yourself in for a night, young man. No mistake.' He smiled, and I smiled. "'What's going to occur up there?' I said, indicating Toft End. "'What do you mean?' Oh, a man like that left with two babies. Oh, he said, they'll manage all right. His sister's a widow. She'll go and live with him. She's as fond of those infants already as if they were her own. We drew up at his double gates. Be sure you explain to Brindley, he said, as I left him, that it isn't my fault you've had a night out of bed. It was your own doing. I'm going to get a bit of sleep now. See you this evening. Bob's asked me to supper. A servant was sweeping Bob Brindley's porch, and the front door was open. I went in. The sound of the piano guided me to the drawing-room. Brindley, the morning cigarette between his lips, was playing one of Maurice Ravel's Le Espagnol. He held his head back so as to keep the smoke out of his eyes. His children, in their blue jerseys, were building bricks on the carpet. Without ceasing to play, he addressed me calmly. "'You're a nice chap. Where the devil have you been?' And one of the little boys, glancing up, said, with roguish, imitative innocence, in his high, shrill voice, "'Where the devil have you been?' End of The Matador of the Five Towns <laughs>